I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be a 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 My name is Lee Shanfine, and as you did, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, I'm originally from California, and my professional career has technically been a little bit all over the place because I've always had something like five to 10 jobs at a time, and I can explain that by saying that I'm a, was, am a freelance dancer, and so that means that I've performed with multiple dance companies of various styles at the same time in in any given year or season. Um, But I've also always had like a science track and I'm a kinesiologist specializing in biomechanics. And so I've had various jobs related to that, um, primarily research at a hospital. And, um, but as a dancer and as somebody who has only ever had a halftime office style job. I've also had a lot of other jobs. So even though those were absolutely not my focus, you know, I I think, uh, especially if you live in a place like New York City, if you are in um, maybe catering (laughs) or um, some other service style job, it's a very high likelihood that you have some other primary focus. Um, but I'll just say that I've also done a lot of other service style jobs and a lot of teaching, teaching dance, teaching biomechanics, um, giving a lot of uh, research presentations and other um, presentational style work as a result of being a researcher and being a performer. I've actually performed almost as much as a researcher giving a talk as I have as a dancer, because those are pretty frequent too. Yeah. If you have any um, particular lectures or um, talks that you um, have that are available and understandable by a general public, I'd love to feature them on the podcast website. But I have to say, I am um, equally interested in hearing about your biomechanics work as your your dance career. actually in the the second episode of this podcast where I interviewed Dan Niebel. Um, he is a, he plays French horn professionally, but he's also currently getting his PhD. And one area of focus is specifically related to playing induced injury, I guess is the, the best way I can think of to describe it. And so we talked a little bit about um, not only that intersection of interest of like, this is something he had experienced as a musician, but then also working in a field where people historically have not really liked to talk about it or consider it, even though it can have such a major impact on their careers as musicians. And so I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more from you about um, what that looks like in the world of dance. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of people are drawn to learn more about things that affect them personally, right? So with a lot of um, performers, 
they might want to learn more about the body. They're really interested in things like nutrition and um, anatomy. A lot of dancers become personal trainers. A lot of dancers, if they have the means and they go in through college and then, and I should say a lot of dancers who don't want to major in dance, but they're in college, they go to a lot of medical biological routes. So I have a lot of friends who became doctors and um, or I should say medical doctors, a lot of friends who are in this whole dance medicine and science world. And a lot of people don't know about it, but it's, it's just another branch of sports medicine, essentially. And there's also that branch of all performing arts medicine. And you have singers and musicians of various sorts and um, all the injuries that affect them. Um, so there are different um, there are different medical conferences that are specific to the performing arts, and there's one organization, really, that's international that's specific to dance, and it's the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science. So a lot of people who are in these fields they go to these conferences, and just as to your previous question, I don't have any recording of these presentations because they're all just at these conferences. Um, but you can look up the abstracts um, for the presentations online. So we should um, advocate to get you your own TED talk at some point in the future. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm good at promoting others. I'll find some other people who will be good at talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so tell me then, um, how did you get into the field of, of dance specifically? And was it something that, I mean, I know you and I did ballet as kids together. Obviously, I didn't go into that professionally, but was it something that you dreamed about as a kid? Well, my mom did it when she was younger, so she wanted to put me in classes. And I did love it right away. And I started with ballet. And I started when I was nine, I think. Um, and I just, I'm really glad that that first teacher that I had, I really liked. Who, which, um, did you start at Dalla or did you start with somebody else? Uh, so my first teacher's name was Elsa and I cannot remember. Yeah, yeah. With the stick that she would like yep. keep time with the cane. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Elsa Flores at yes. Fuller Lodge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so started with her and I just, really loved her classes. Couldn't tell you what they were now, but I just remember really loving it. And we had that recital. And I remember like loving the costume. I don't know that I really loved performing when I was really little. I would get super nervous. And I would start, it's really weird to me. I think dance actually worked this out, but I remember being on stage that first recital and having all these weird ticks and things because I was like nervous or maybe not breathing enough. And, um, and my mom saw me do that on stage and she was like, you need to not like do that thing with your eyes or <laughs> whatever it was. And I feel like that was the start of dance being like, oh, this is probably more than just, oh, I love moving. It's also like, how do you hold your body? And what does it mean to perform or be presentational and do things for a reason other than solely like intrinsic, oh, I, I just love to move, but also having an extrinsic motivation, which is not as good as intrinsic, 
in terms of psychological factors, but it's very real. And most of us operate on extrinsic motivators. Like, why do we even work? Oh, we need money, right? Or we, oh, I want to impress my boss or whatever it is. So it was this, this too, being too young to even have any idea of what that is, but really having that instilled in me and um, finding a lot of value in why, why do I want to work this hard? Oh, it, like it feels good. I think working this hard in dance feels good. I also like the idea that I'm doing it for somebody else. And so, yeah, that started with uh, those little classes in our uh, not real dance studio. Um, but yeah, my mom put me in it. And I remember seeing her, she kept her one first and only pair of point shoes. I remember seeing those in her old stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. I want to, I want to see if I can do this. Um, did you have that moment that I did when you watched uh, the Wizard of Oz for the first time and you see the munchkin scene and there are those tiny little girls dressed in for the lullaby league in their like point shoes which later on of course we learned they were like much too young to do that with foot development and like bone growth but it was like this magical thing they're standing on their toes oh my goodness I want to do that yeah. well first of all I love everything about that scene <laughs> um well <laughs> Yeah, I love that. It's so old fashioned. Like in the olden days, they would put kids on point as like, wow, it's a, they probably have mangled feet by the time they're 15. But um, I don't know if I really identified with that as you could, because you're a very little lady and I'm very tall. And I don't, I don't know if I could let you like, oh, look at that munchkin. I want to do that. But <laughs> I definitely saw a lot well, my grandmother was super into movie musicals. And so I saw a lot of that from her and just like, you know, every movie musical is like the joy of dance, like right in your face. And so I saw a lot of that. And I saw, once I knew it was like, oh, I love ballet. Then I was watching more of just like ballet videos. And that taught me a lot about how a ballerina moves and even just like technique. Um, and then also, of course, the artistry of it. I think a lot of people in dance would tell you that there are those two facets, technical and artistic. And some people in dance would not say that dance is a sport, but it's obviously an extreme physical activity. Um, so I guess it just depends on if you consider it more of an art form or more of a physical activity. I don't know. I think it's a, a perfect blend. It's very extreme on your body. Um, but I, yes, I had a lot of influences with um, just, I'm going to say good teachers. They weren't necessarily like technically good teachers, but people who made me want to dance. And then also getting to see videos of dancers who I just thought were beautiful. You know, back in the day, no YouTube. Like you had to go buy a video, buy a VHS. Um, and I don't think I even saw a live show until um, at, at least teenage years. Maybe not even till, I think maybe middle school. Maybe it was high school, I don't know. And we you know, drove down to Albuquerque to see anyone. 
drive a, a ways to go to a bigger city. So, um, and I, I feel like with the students here in actually in Montana where I'm teaching, uh, it's similar, like no, not a lot of access to professionals in, I guess, almost any field like that. Um, so you kind of have to seek it out yourself or you have to tell them when you're, when you're a kid, people have to tell you like, oh, you should watch this. Here's a, here's a DVD or, oh, there's a show. Maybe guys get together, carpool and go see this show so that you can see what is this thing that you think you're practicing? So then I guess, um, given that you had somewhat like limited exposure to professional dancers, do you remember the first time that you like learned about or sort of thought about doing it professionally yourself? Probably in high school when I, you know, you kind of have to think about those things or you kind of get to an age where other people are quitting. Um, I got to the point where I knew that I wanted to do both dance and science. And I think I'm really lucky that I kind of knew what I wanted to do. But as perhaps as with your musician friend, it was an injury that made me realize that. Uh, so it was like freshman year of um, high school. And let's see, I don't know if it started. So I went to my first ever summer intensive that summer. So that's where you go away and do like, um, usually it's somewhere around three weeks, maybe even four weeks where you go somewhere and stay there and just train all day, but in a, like a professional manner. And so I think it was, before that intensive but I started having pain in my ankle and I couldn't figure it out and I got between like that freshman year of high school and freshman year of college I probably got five different diagnoses or possible diagnoses there was nothing like oh this is it um and it never what I realized is that I felt better if I stood a certain way. Once I finally learned a little bit more about alignment and how to control my posture and all of those things, I realized it really didn't hurt during this stuff and it really hurt during this other stuff. And it wasn't related to just exertion. Like it wasn't jumping, jumping didn't hurt. Um, and I figured out it was just my alignment. And so if I could make my ankle not hurt just by modifying my posture ever so slightly and engaging certain muscles, that just fascinated me. And I knew that I wanted to do something with that, even though I didn't have any of the vocabulary to be like, oh, I wanna do biomechanics. I had no idea what that was. Um, but that was the start of, obviously I already loved dance. And then I was so intrigued by what could that be? What could we do if we analyze the body and apply certain things or train people in a certain way? What could we achieve in terms of, um, again, technical ability, but then also injury prevention or rehabilitation, right? So by you know junior year of high school, I knew that I didn't want to stop dancing, but also, and of course, lots of pressure from my mom, want to go to college and study whatever would let me figure out more about the body and alignment. And it, 
when I applied to college, it was like, uh, I guess I'll apply to the physics department because forces. I don't know. I really didn't know. <laughs> um, and then once I got there, I found out about physiology and I decided to go in that direction, even though that actually was sort of the wrong direction. But then just because of my course schedule and wanting to always take the dance classes, I actually ended up taking more neuroscience. So all my undergrad background is like actually more neuroscience. And then it was by the time I went to grad school, I still actually had like never really heard of biomechanics. I was like blindly looking at grad schools that I knew had like engineering and such. Um, and then I, as I was searching for majors, I realized that, oh, oh, kinesiology, this exists. And so then I ended up finding a school that had those things and, and would let me study dancers there. And I didn't have to just get on whatever grant was studying backpacks or whatever else. So <laughs> um, that basically dictated where I went for school. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. And today I'm talking with Lee Shanfine, a ballet dancer and biomechanics researcher. And what did that look like in terms of kind of like a timeline where you are developing your dance career and at the same time pursuing then this research interest and the like accompanying education and all of that. So, I mean, it sounds mm -hmm. like a pretty full schedule to me. Yes. I was always way over my credits. <laughs> um, what I'll say, I don't know who might listen to this, but if anyone wants any advice, if you're going to go to college, you probably don't want to major in dance, even if you want to become a dancer. Because the thing that a college degree in dance really gets you, if you go through the MFA, that makes it possible for you to teach at colleges. Uh, if you want to be a professional dancer and you don't really have any desire to teach, at least at this time in your life, just wait. Um, you would still learn a lot in undergrad from your teachers. If you go to a school that has, I guess, enough prestige, you're going to work with good choreographers and that could help you get a job after. But you have to weigh, do I want to pay a ton of money to do awesome dancing? That may, may help me get a job afterwards. Or do I want to go ahead and start pursuing professional work while still taking classes? You still take classes. You never stop, right? Um, and then maybe go to college as your career is like maybe coming down. A lot of dancers do that. A lot of schools offer very flexible schedules. Anyway, I don't think a dancer needs to go to college if they want to just pursue dance. And if they don't know yet, if they would even want that MFA. All that being said, if you have another passion, like biology or whatever, you got to go to college. So you want to choose a school that either they have great classes on campus or you really need to be in a town or city or whatever that has the dance. So when I went to undergrad, I was in San Diego, I went to UCSD. And 
they had good dance on campus. And then I was also able one semester, because uh, it was a lot um, to perform with City Ballet of San Diego. So that was a company in town. And like I did their Nutcracker. I also did their summer program. And so there was good dance in San Diego. I went to grad school and mm, okay dance on campus if you want to do modern. And where was grad school? Oh, sorry. At Purdue University in Indiana. Like almost no dance. There's one ballet school in town and that's it. So what I didn't think about before going was oh, they have a dance department. Great. I'll have plenty of dancing to do. And that wasn't the case. And I was really not happy there with that. So it's totally doable for someone to professionally pursue dance and another track. And lots of people have done it. And I can tell you they're successful doctors or whatever. (laughs) Um, but everyone kind of has a different pathway. Some of them danced professionally first and then went to medical school, for example. Or um, a co- some people like me who did literally both at the same time. Or other people who mostly did dance. And then the, I don't know, it can go either way. Maybe, maybe edits. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say also is if you end up with a situation like me where you're in the school and you're like, crap, I'm not getting enough dance. Try not to stay there too long. Graduate. And then I feel like I finally learned everything I should have learned uh, about dance by the time I was 30, which is pretty freaking late or dance. Everyone's retired by then. (laughs) Um, But that also just kept in actually inspired me to want to dance even more like, oh, okay, maybe my arabesque isn't as high as it was when I was 20. But now I have a better arabesque and uh, arabesque is leg to the back. So you just figure out how to do things better. And I, if you talk to any mat- mature dancer, so let's just say a dancer closer to 30 and up, which is kind of sad, but um, I bet you they will all have something similar to say about, well, I became a better dancer. Or oh, I, in, instead of retiring when you have a child, oh, I became a much better dancer after I gave birth or whatever the things are. You hear the same thing after somebody has an injury oh, I I had to get so much stronger. I became a much better dancer, maybe more cautious. So some things can be taken away, right? But you're more mindful and more mature and your movement quality can get better and better. So the track that you take almost doesn't matter. So it sounds like there's maybe a little bit more um, flexibility or variability with the, the timeline that people can pursue than, you know, watching like a movie like center stage might lead you to believe. I also wonder though, if some of that has changed, like, do you feel that the field has 
um, like recognizes more some of the value that being more mature and having more experience brings to your dance and your technique and performing? I think it has changed in, re in the respect that there's a lot more than classical ba ballet out there. And I would say probably for classical ballet, it's a little bit more still, you got to be young. Maybe you retire, retire by the time you're 24 because you have ankle problems or something. And I'm really stereotyping and generalizing, but it's based on things, <laughs> real things. I think what has really changed over the past, let's say 20 years, is that a lot of companies now appreciate dancers that have gone to college and they want to see those dancers who maybe that choreographer went to that campus and set a piece and they want those dancers that they chose to come audition for them after they've graduated and they see a lot of the benefit of at least and you know once you've graduated from undergrad I wouldn't say you're a mature dancer but you have certainly matured since high school and learned a lot more and done more rep and probably done a wider variety of genres so they really appreciate the dancers who've gone through that and dedicated themselves to that um, and have that additional knowledge and maturity. In terms of actually aged and experienced and mature dancers, I do think that not only when choreographers end up working with them, do they really appreciate it? And again, a lot of it is emotional maturity. They also, um, the, the world has changed. So it, it used to be like, okay, for a female dancer, oh, I'm going to dance and then I'm going to quit and start a family. But now you have either the opposite, oh, I'm going to have a family and I'm going to keep dancing, or I'm going to dance to a much later age and start a family at a much later age. Because that in, you know, in society, that's a whole thing. Yeah. And so that is really changing, I think, the overall population of the professional dance scene. And audiences are expecting more than just classical ballet now too. And they're expecting, maybe I, this might only be in like big cities, but expecting more variety of bodies, variety of skin colors, variety of styles, variety of what seeing someone with a certain training do actually a different style of dance in the in the show and looking for variety and looking for something that doesn't just give them something in you know in their bellies with like oh I just loved that movement but also like dang that gave me something to think about or maybe they don't even think of it as dance it's more like physical theater and just performative art and like what is that story that they're trying to, to tell? So audiences are also really changing. I mean, hopefully they're changing. You still go to, especially the ballet and like there's a lot of gray haired people, but um, uh, I think for non-large ballet companies, especially audiences are very different now. Can you give us a sense of sort of, um some of the variety of 
both companies that you've worked with um, and like performing or, or dance styles just to kind of, um, you know, cause I think people have kind of like an idea of what it means to be a, a ballet dancer. That's very narrow kind of. So just to give us a sense of like what's out there and the, the breadth of what you as a dancer have experienced. So my experience is as a freelancer and who one who is primarily trained in classical ballet. And so I, um, when you dance, you never stop taking classes. And most of the classes that I take are ballet. But when you're a freelancer and a lot of the companies that you work with do not offer you a class, you're taking the, what are called open classes. So they're just classes that anybody can go to at a big dance studio and they have all different levels. And so you're taking like the professional level classes and they have a variety of styles. So even though I mostly am taking ballet, I'd also take a lot of modern or what's called contemporary, which is, it could you can have contemporary anything, but I was mostly taking contemporary modern essentially. And so my style is called contemporary ballet. And it's it's all a ballet foundation of movement, but it's very modernized and it looks different from classical ballet for sure, the choreography, but you still have the same lines, so to speak, and a pointed foot. You still use a lot of turnout from, you know, turning out your legs from the hip and the similar posture. Um, so it's just like a manipulation of the ballet vocabulary. And so as a performer, I mostly would get hired to do contemporary ballet. Um, that would frequently be in like socks or ballet slippers or point shoes. And I was almost never in a tutu. <laughs> so it's gonna look really different from what you think about with like classical ballet. And I've only done actually a little bit of classical ballet. And one thing, and actually this is true in every style in a lot of the places or a lot of the choreographers who I auditioned for. I'm very tall. And even though when you see dancers on stage, they look really tall, they're really long. That's just because their bodies look long. Dancers are, especially in ballet, often actually quite small. And so being a tall person is very limiting for getting company work. Unless a choreographer specifically wants a range of bodies or they just love tall dancers. And those things exist too. And that's why I can have a career. <laughs> um, although being tall is very helpful for, um, I also did a lot of event gigs. So performing at events and um, those Specifically, they wanted taller, taller ballerinas. I don't know if it's just because it's like more impressive, maybe to see like a bigger person, or if it's because you're more visible at an event. You put someone somewhere and you want people to be able to see you. I don't know, but that helped me get those jobs. Um, but anyway, I've I've performed everything from like classical ballet to like postmodern, roll around on the floor you know, improvisation, all of that stuff. Um, it just depended on who wanted to work with me. 
and slightly lesser who I wanted to work with. Uh, if I met someone who I really liked their movement, you know, try to be like, oh, you know, looking for dancers. Uh, or if I start working with someone, I was like, oh, you know, this is not my favorite. And then just, you know, don't work with them anymore after that gig that you committed to. Uh, but it's pretty competitive. I'm really happy that I got to a place in my career where I, I didn't need to audition anymore. Just like I knew enough people. I had my regular companies that I performed with. Um, I have good friends, word of mouth. You, somebody recommends you to somebody and then you still have to then like maybe go to an open rehearsal or something where you still have to demonstrate and prove yourself. It's it's still an audition, but you haven't gone into a room full of a hundred people and had to stand out, you know? So how many years did you have to do that auditioning process before you really had established that network? It probably started to get easier after about five years. I knew enough people, but also there's a lot of turnover because it is a hard career. Uh, so you have all these friends and then half of them are gone by, you know, three years later. And then, so you have to kind of work through having not only obviously friends and people who you work with, but friends and people who you work with who are sticking around. And so I think that that started around like the five-year mark and then got, and then I, let's see, I have to do a little bit of math. <laughs> what year is it? I don't know. I mean, time has no meaning now that we're in a <laughs> pandemic. So there is that. <laughs> Space doesn't either. Uh, here we are on Zoom. Um, okay. I would say it started to get easier around three years. And then by five or six years, I probably should have still been auditioning, but I didn't want to. And then by like year seven or so, I really didn't need to. Again, probably should have, I, maybe I would do like one or two a year just to see. Uh, but it also got to the point where it's like, oh, I don't even want to go to, I'm not going to just audition for the sake of auditioning and getting any job. I got to be choosy. I was like, oh, I know this person or, oh, I like, I know I like their stuff or, oh, my friends already work with this person. They're, they're going to put in a word for me. Let me go see if I can also, because also you get to the point where you're like, I just want to dance with my friends. Now I'm not a super competitive person and this is just what I liked. I just wanted to dance with choreographers who I liked and, uh, and dance with my friends profession professionally. And I would be like, hey guys, do you want to do this audition? Let's go together. Who cares which one of us, hopefully one of us gets the job. It's just like, let's do this and have fun. And I know other people are significantly more cutthroat than that, uh, but that was my perspective and um, made, made my career much more enjoyable. And it's good to have friends who are like, Hey, come, my choreographer is looking for someone. I want you to come and have them see you. Yeah, so really like a community, a, you know, supportive and welcoming community, it sounds like you were able to create with your friends. 
So you mentioned that you did um, some like events here and there, and I know I've seen um, some pretty fun photo shoots on your um, Facebook page in the past. What is like either the coolest or sort of the most out there venue or setting in which you performed? Oh, well, probably one of the coolest venues that I performed in was I performed in an opera in the Park Avenue Armory, which is this absolutely huge former armory that is now used solely for artistic purposes. And so it's just performing performances and um, exhibitions, essentially. So that is just a really great venue in, this, in New York City and um, is probably the one venue I could list on my resume and like people outside of New York City might know it. <laughs> uh, probably the most like whoa venue was when I went out to, where was, I don't know, where was it? <laughs> uh, I think one, one stadium in Connecticut and one stadium in, maybe it was Pennsylvania. I don't know. I did two shows with, um, you remember, you know, the comedian Hannibal Buress? Uh, he had a bit a couple of years ago where he like had a rap. And at one point in the rap, he just says, ballerinas. And he wanted actual dancers to come out on stage and just like twirl around a little bit and then leave for, you know, two minutes or something. So he would try to get dancers like in the local areas where this um, tour was going through. So I did two of those shoes shows and that was a stadium of like 14,000 people just to run out twiddle around a little bit while he talked about ballerinas in a rap and then go away and it's so funny because it's like super famous comedians we got to stay and watch the show it was awesome huge audience big whatever tour and then he give, he's like oh here's a 20 <laughs> like we got paid 20 bucks uh yeah one thing people should know that they probably don't know is uh the amount you get paid is like usually has like nothing to do with how much effort you put in <laughs> or how big the show is or anything um especially with the actual well that's a very different thing but especially with freelance stuff it just like depends on how many either how many donors that choreographer can get or if they have like an office job where they make money that can go to it or it has nothing to do with how good the work is in in many of my and my friend's opinion. Um, who gets money has nothing to do with how great their work is. They just need at least one person who thinks their work is good who has money and then they can do whatever shows they want. Uh, but I've performed in like, warehouses and just all around the city like on the street under the subway overhead well it's not on the under the subway overpasses and in galleries and in hotels I performed for people's birthday parties it's like you hired ballerinas for birthday I, they flew us to Miami for one night to perform in a wedding in Miami. There are professional dancers in Miami, but they used our person 
our producer in New York blew us down. That was cool, but kind of dumb. So I've been in Miami for 24 hours. (laughs) Uh, Performed in casinos. Performed in people's homes, like the full gamut. Most of the time, the shows are in places with a real stage, with an actual dance floor, with wings, with lights. Uh, I did more outdoor performances um, later. I started working with a choreographer who did a lot of free shows outside, like in parks. So I did start performing outside a lot, um, which is fun. And if you only have to do it for one day at a time, let's say, it's fine. It doesn't like hurt your joints and stuff. But if you had to be on the concrete and like uneven surfaces and like all the time, I would, I wouldn't like it. But because it's just for people outside and it's free and there are a lot of kids usually and, um, Usually there's like a really nice setting because either it's in a park or there's like a nice view or whatever. Those are pretty enjoyable too. As long as your choreographer has set it up nicely for you. So you don't have some weird costume change. You don't have to put on a bunch of makeup or whatever it is that you have Kinda to do on shrub. You're like, you're like doing yeah. makeup in a green room that's literally surrounded by greenery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That or I can see like in the fall, like the um, occupational hazard of like dry leaves on the ground if you're, if they're not, you know, thinking about that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, you can imagine in New York City, there are many, many occupational hazards on the ground. <laughs> pizza rat. I mean, you don't want pizza rat getting in your way while you're trying to perform. Oh, pizza rat, big fan. Yep. <laughs> Comes to all the shows. So um, what would you say have been, and I, and I w- want to, you know, address both the, the dance aspect and the mi- biomechanics aspect, what have been some of the surprises you've encountered going into those fields professionally? With research, I thought it would be easier to find a half-time research job. So when I first moved to the city, I wanted to just find a half-time job and then the rest dance. And that was, it probably isn't impossible, but it felt impossible. (laughs) Every job was like full-time. I had kind of already learned this in San Diego, but I was surprised that people with like really legit dance jobs who worked for companies that people know and who tour and have really um, a, a little bit more prestige to the name, they still have multiple other jobs. They can't just work for one good company. And then just for my own dancing, I think I thought there would it would be paid a little bit better. And that if you were in a company, they might give you class. I think I didn't realize it would all feel so thrown together because nobody has money. So um, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of the work, they try to minimize rehearsal time because they're paying 
for the studio space, they're paying for all the dancers to be there. And I just always wished that with most of the companies that I worked with, we'd have more process, more rehearsal process. Now, that being said, even if something's thrown together, or even if we have a lot of time to work on something, most performances are only one weekend. So you put in a ton of work and it, the choreographers put in a ton of money and then you do like one weekend of shows. And there, there's a lot of, let me rephrase that. I found that there was a lot of satisfaction in getting to repeat a performance because you get so familiar with the work and you it just comes out of you and you get to just think about all the artistic aspects of it. And I never really got that until I started working with the choreographer who I mentioned did a lot of outdoor shows. We did a lot of festivals. And so there would be, we would work on a certain number of pieces and have a couple of casts just in case people weren't free because these were set dates with all these festivals. And then we would perform like the same couple of pieces for the entirety of like spring through summer into fall when is like all this festival season. And you just felt like you knew those dances and you really just got to perform them instead of thinking about them. And lots of different audiences because it's all these different festivals all around the city. It was really satisfying. And I, I kind of didn't realize how that would feel. And I knew I never wanted to be in just like one company, like one full-time company. I loved freelance and doing lots of different things. But there was that drawback of lots of different things for short periods and not diving into the work so much. So I guess I would say it sounds like as a field, it can be pretty precarious in that there's not a lot of supports. Um, I don't even know like what the benefit situation is for most people, if that's a thing like health insurance. <laughs> if a company is unionized, it probably then it has health insurance. It's pretty rare for dancers to have health insurance through their dance jobs. Which I, and I'm like speaking with kind of freelance communities. Okay. But I mean, you know, you think you are making your living with your body. And so mm -hmm. it seems like it would be sort of a no brainer that that would be a valuable investment. But then even just thinking about, yeah, so you're talking about um, doing as much work as the choreographer can afford to rehearse. And then someone buys a ticket for that performance. And I can see a lot of um, attendees saying, well, why, why does this need to be so expensive? I'm only spending an hour or 45 minutes or an hour and a half mm -hmm. at the most. And they're not paying just for that 45 minutes to an hour and a half. They're paying for mm -hmm. the time you spent rehearsing. They're paying for the continued work that you do to develop your skills as a dancer. And I think that's often something we shortchange with a lot of different types of art, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's dance or music or creating a, a physical like work of art, people don't think about 
the fact that they're paying for more than just what they see in front of them or here. And because we want it to be affordable and relatively accessible, ticket prices are actually really low for, for this. I don't mean like for Broadway, you know. And what's funny, another thing people don't realize, like you were saying, is that your $20 ticket, even if somebody sells out their theater, the ticket sales are probably just paying for the theater rental. So paying for the dancers, costumes, if the Cardford actually wants to get paid themselves, rehearsal space, if they have to provide other things like makeup, shoes, you have to have a lighting person, maybe, maybe you're required to have also a, a stage manager, whatever the theater requires. Those are all things that your ticket is not paying for. So if you like a company, you should donate to it. Because your, this is how badly we're paid. Your like $200 donation could be that dancer's performance fee. So if you like a dancer or you like a company, you should donate directly to the company because that money goes a, a really long way. Your ticket goes nowhere in general. Depends on the theater, but that's, that is the norm is you have to have donors to produce work and to pay your dancers okay. I think a lot of people don't realize, and this is gonna again, probably be in more in um, bigger cities maybe where there's just so much dance or so much performing. Um, a lot of people perform for free. That's one reason why it's such a saturated scene and why there is, a, um, I'm just gonna say it, there's a lot of bad dance lot of bad music, whatever. Throwing some shade. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you want to be a choreographer doesn't mean you should. Um, but because people are willing to work for free because it's such a do it for the love of it type of thing, um, there is a lot of bad work out there. And like I said, also, sometimes that bad work is the one where they've got the donor and they're going to keep producing shows because they can. And then you see people doing incredible work and they try it for a year and they're like, I just can't, I just can't get the money. I can't, I don't have the time, whatever it is. So it's a real mixed bag. So when you're talking to folks um, and they find out that you're a dancer, if they don't already know, what do you find are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about what your life must be like? I mean, I think we all have like that, that stereotypical idea of like the glamorous, really high stress um, life that we see in the movies, but like, what do you find people actually just think your life is like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, really, most people just have no idea. They have no concept of what that means. So I don't, I'm not sure because they don't even have a starting point. I don't think they saw center stage or <laughs> anything. So I, yeah, I don't know. The, the main thing that I encounter when people are like, oh, wow, you're a dancer is that they have no idea what that is, which is kind of sad because if we want the arts to survive, I think people need to have a better understanding of what it means to be an artist. And also that means they've probably never 
been to a dance performance. So they're like intrigued by this thing that is a mystery to them that does not need to be a mystery because they could just go see some shows. And so that's been a big thing with, um, I just did, you know, in casual conversation, I'm just like encouraging people to actually go see dance instead of being like, wow, dancer, that's so cool. You, you're amazing. What I'm like, but do you don't even know what that means. You need to go see the show. You should go to a ballet, go to a modern show, go to something super weird in a, you know, some back room of a basement somewhere and just, just see dance and like see people see human bodies moving. Cause it's so different from what at least our society, like especially American society asks people to do. There's not you mean a lot sit of at like a desk for 40, mm-hmm. 40 hours a week? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Sit at a desk, lay in bed, watch a movie, which also I love. I'm not putting that down. It's like, but also you could have your mind blown by going to a dance show. That's also when I do hear people go to shows or let's say they grew up like when they were little, their mom would take them to the Nutcracker and stuff like that. They always have good things to say about it. Maybe if someone has something bad to say, they don't want to share it. So I've never heard it, but I always, always hear, even if they're like, wow, that was so weird. It it just was something so new. Like it's always a good experience. Do you, I'm getting the impression, I guess, that like, um, for a lot of, I mean, I think, I think about how often people go to concerts, whether it's like a rock concert or a folk concert or hip hop or whatever, people don't really think much. It's a special thing to do. And it's a thing they look forward to, but it's not like something unattainable or like, it's not really, people don't gatekeep it or like see it as something that only certain types of people do. And it sounds like maybe that's how people think about dance. Would you say that you're trying to like make it more approachable for people? people? I think a lot of people are. Uh, And you can hate, you know, so you think you can dance or dancing with the stars or whatever, but that brought dance back to mainstream television. Um, I think two things. One is when people think about dance in terms of uh, the types of concerts people go to, I think people automatically put dance in with um, like classical music. I'm not going to go see a string quartet. That's not cool. But I'll go see a hip hop concert. Oh, and maybe there are backup dancers. And people don't quite associate that. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to go see such and such huge artist. They probably have a stage full of backup dancers. And they kind of forget that they could do it the other way around. Go see dance and hear great music. Because almost all dances to music. So, I would imagine, I mean, as someone who as a kid dabbled in dance and like has pursued it as purely a hobby in my life, um, I like, you know, look at you and what you've done. And I'm like, there is no comparison between my like going to a weekly swing class and the life that you, Uh you know, embody as a dancer. But what, what are some of the biggest differences that you see, um, between doing this professionally and people who do it as a hobby? It would be the same for anything else. It's just, it's um, something that people like doing 
you know, once a week versus if you had to worry about that making you money and that you do it every day and that you have remained good at it. It's also just dance and, and similar things are just so different in terms of you aren't just good at it if you know what you're doing. You have to keep your body in shape. And of course, your mind too, right? Um, so it goes both ways. You can have somebody who their body is quote unquote made for it, but then their heart isn't in it or emotionally it doesn't work for them. Or the other way around, somebody is so thoughtful and creative and artistic, but their body doesn't allow them to do the thing that they want to do at the level that would be required for a professional. So there are so many things that go into, do you, are you able to pursue this thing at that level? And do you want to pursue this thing at that level? And then that goes for both your body and your mind. Unlike a lot of most other professions, I would say, where you can get away with, probably it's mostly your mind, right? Or your ability to type or your ability to even, even a more physical job. Like, can you lift that piece of machinery or can you turn the wrench? Does your wrist work? So it's, it's just a more intricate level. And then the fact that, I mean, we all, I think we can all agree that the arts are a necessity, but I don't think we can say like, well, the world could function if we didn't have professional dance. I think we can say that too. So it's also not a career where we're like, okay, we have to train people to dance and then make sure that they can continue to do it and make sure that it's all funded. And so it's also just a really difficult career to maintain like functionally. And there's ebb and flow because there are seasons, kind of like sport. There's more dance in the fall. There's a performance season in the fall and there's a, or I should say uh, more winter, like um, Nutcracker. It's always gonna be like December, right? And then there's always a spring performance season. So usually you're super busy in the fall and you're performing and you're super busy in the late, like spring and you're performing. And even if you have those set seasons, you're probably always like off in January or off in August. So you have to make sure that you have, let's just say money, pay your rent those months. So everything is up and down. So I also, um, freelancing in those busy seasons, I would be working with up to like six companies at the same time. But then in a not busy season, I might be like, what am I doing? Uh, literally, what am I doing with my time? What should I be doing? And also, how are my finances? Do I need to be trying to get more jobs right now? Uh, and you don't know how long, like in that ebb and flow in those waves, how long is the down part going to be? Because even if you know that you have shows, let's say at the end of May, you may not know when your rehearsal period starts. 
So you don't know when you're going to start earning money again, even though it's like those guaranteed shows. So everything is in a, in a weird balance or, uh, and a very unstable equilibrium. Uh, and so compared to other jobs, you just, you just have, it's constant, right? It's like nine to five or whatever, every, every weekday, um, even if it's more physical or even like a professional athlete, they still, they know they're off. They know when they're off and they know when they're on and they know unless they have a weird thing with their contract, like they know what they're doing and they have a ton of support. They have a athletic trainer or whatever, even if they get injured and they're off. And dance is like one of, is like an hourly job, right? So if you get injured, you're not getting paid if you're off. As a freelancer, I should say, there are, you know, big companies, workers comp, whatever there, they could be covered, but yeah. Well, it's and I'm thinking about how it interacts then with your work with the, with biomechanics. Cause I would imagine it's hard. I mean, you said like, it's hard to find a part-time job. I would also imagine it's really hard to find like, a seasonal job where they're like, oh, sure, we can totally um, work with you being able to like devote a lot more time to your research and your work during some months and you're not sure which mm-hmm. ones th- those will be. And then other months you can't give us anything. Yeah, totally fine. Like I yeah. can I can imagine that that might be a little hard to, to find. Yeah, I'll just say people make it work. And if they find good employers who understand, then it's like the best thing they could have possibly found. Um, when I was working, so, well, I worked at a place that worked with dancers. So I worked for the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries and they're, they have physical therapy, orthopedics, um, educational programs, research, et cetera. And so it was a place that already very well understood what I was doing. And so I basically, um, I was fortunate that I could pretty much establish a schedule for a season. And then when the season changed, I would reestablish a new schedule so I could keep it consistent for like four months at a time. And, and, um, because I'm mostly working with the same companies and they mostly try to do the same rehearsal schedules, it wasn't changing tremendously. It was more like day to day, like one day I might be there in the morning, the next time in the afternoon kind of thing. But then week to week, it was, um, consistent. Uh, so that pretty much worked out well. And then as with anybody, then if it's like, oh, I got a gig that for two weeks, I, depending on how flexible they wanted to be, I either needed to just take those two weeks off from work or I could like work in the evening or something like that for two weeks um, because it was temporary, right? Um, So you have to have an employer who, whether it's a, a, a hospital or, uh, a restaurant or a temp, like stuff through temp agencies, or if it's teaching and you need to get subs for your classes, whatever it is, you have to have an employer who understands that they're not losing you. You're going to come back um, and you will 
you know, find your own subs or whatever it is. Um, and that they just understand that lifestyle and the need for that kind of flexibility. And not ev- not everyone's willing to do that. So do you, would you say that you have, I mean, you've had a, a really varied career so far, not only within the world of dance, but also um, with like, you know, combining your scientific and research interests and teaching as well. Do you have a role model or several role models um, who maybe inspired you to go into the field or who inspire you nowadays or have at different points in your career? Taking dance classes in Los Alamos, we would have different teachers like every two years or so. And one of them, Julia, she was so encouraging. So encouraging of all of us. And it was like, whether or not you want dance to be your career, like dance, do, you know, go for it. Go to summer intensive. She she encouraged us to go to that first summer intensive. And then I just kept doing them from there. And you just learn so much if you step outside of, you know, where you currently are. And she encouraged us to do that. Anyway, she became like a mentor, like a godmother from the dance side, just sent, just always being encouraging. And she had been a professional dancer, no, no science or anything. So she could always have like some wisdom to share with dance and being in New York, because that's where she danced. Um, and just, you know, being friendly, meeting people, um, she has always been a, just a really encouraging person. Would you say you have found opportunities then to sort of, um, mentor or act as role model for other people who have, who kind of fall in the same areas of interest as you? When you can come from a small town and still be able, you don't have to like be born in New York to make it in the world of dance. Right, exactly. And you don't have to go to a full day um, performing arts school to become a professional dancer. Uh, Yeah, any any of the options. Whenever there is an opportunity to tell them something, I try to tell them stuff along the lines of like anything is possible because what you're told in dance is a lot of like a lot of no. Yeah. You're not good enough. Oh, you don't have the right feet or you're not flexible enough, blah, blah, blah. And, and most of the stuff you're told is like out of your control, like about your body or about what training you have and what you could have had. And really I mean, anyone, if anyone enters the dance scene in New York City, they'll know like, oh, there's a variety over here. <laughs> like you, it's all, it's all crushed. Like anyone could potentially do anything. Um, I will say, depending on your ability and also how you look, you, you're going to get better jobs or, you know, on, uh, more limited work but it's not, it's not impossible. And people make it sound like it's impossible. Um, when I was teaching biomechanics, 
I get Barnard. Oh, those students were pretty much all in the dance department. Uh, most of my students were primarily pursuing dance, but they, what was really lovely is I just, I did see all that interest that I've always had where they really do want to do both dance and something else, some sort of science. And so I, I really hope because I'm there teaching a college class, lecturing to them every week. And they know that I'm also a professional dancer and I leave teaching them and I'm either going over to like my research job or I'm heading to the studio and I'm going to go rehearse. So they literally right in front of them is somebody who's doing something that they probably want to do. So I think that's probably the most direct and deliberate example that I've given students that they can do, they can do this and they can, if they want to, they can make it happen. If you hadn't gone down this career path, what do you think you'd be doing? Well, I think it's important to point out that dance also led me to become a researcher. But let's say something along the way, let's say I lost a leg or something, something that really was like, okay, probably not going to dance anymore. Um, I would probably just be a full-time researcher. I do really love research and that kind of writing, but I don't know because my research was also always about dance. I think um, I would probably just go back to school and study um, a different branch of engineering and get more into using my expertise uh, and knowledge about the body to do some other kind of biomechanical research, maybe something that lends itself towards prostheses or robotics or something else where you have to understand movement. So I always thought that that would be really interesting too. Did you have a dream job when you were a kid that had nothing to do with dance? Well, I don't know if you remember, but I also had a lot of animals and a lot of pets. And so I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a veterinarian. Uh, I love, I was obsessed with horses. I thought I would just be like a horse person, a horse trainer. I don't know, something with horses. And then that was kind of my first thing. I was like, can I be a ballerina and train horses? That was, I think my first, can I do these things together? Um, yeah, no, I was definitely obsessed with horses and animals. You know, I was just going to say, um, you also totally could have been one of those like trick riders who basically dances on horseback. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah. It, every time I was like, can I do ballet and horses? I would always picture like the circus ballerina on the horse's back. I'm like, well, that's not quite, it's not quite either of those things. <laughs> it doesn't scratch either itch for you. <laughs> no, I'm not enough of a daredevil either. This episode concludes the first season of My Dilettante Life. I hope you've enjoyed the guests and topics so far. We're taking a short break before season two starts in May with a whole new roster of interesting folks. In the meantime, feel free to submit questions and other feedback through the podcast website or on social media. Have a wonderful April. Juice. When I grow up, I want to be a person with a job that makes a positive difference in my community not just someone working towards the financial bottom line. 
you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!